Hey, y'all, you should sign up for my Substack. It's scotthortonshow.substack.com. And if you do that, you'll get the interviews a day before everybody else. But not only that, they'll be free of commercials. How do you like that? Pretty good, huh? scotthortonshow.substack.com. All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of antiwar.com, author of the book, Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy, and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there, and the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, introducing Dave DeCamp. He's our news editor at antiwar.com. Welcome back. How you doing, man? Good, Scott. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for doing it. Listen, uh, the biggest news, I think, is that Biden met with Chairman Xi of the uh, dictatorship of the Communist Party of the Chinese World Empire uh, this morning, last night, something like that, in Indonesia. So can you tell us everything you know about that? Yeah, well, uh, details are just really coming out about their meeting. They met for about three hours in Indonesia uh, ahead of the G20 summit that's being held there. Um, and basically going into the meeting, you know, the expectations were pretty low uh, because really the backdrop is that U.S.-China relations are at their lowest point in decades, really, since they opened up. And uh, Biden said that the meeting was about figuring out what each other's red lines are. Uh, and, and it was really and it seems like um, from what information has come out after that, you know, it's really just about managing tensions. They didn't expect any kind of breakthrough or to resolve any big issues. Um, it's more so about uh, figuring out how to avoid a conflict because um, that's how bad relations are at this point. Um, the good news that has come out of it is that Blinken, although I mean, he's not much of a diplomat, as he's shown us, but it looks like the White House said that he's going to travel to China now. He's going to make a trip to China after this. So there's going to be some more uh, diplomacy. But um, really, it seems like the main issue that they discussed was Taiwan, because tensions are really high between the U.S. and China over Taiwan, as the U.S. is looking to increase support uh with Taiwan in all sorts of different ways. I mean, the Biden administration just launched trade talks with Taiwan. And um, just a quick background. I mean, this is a sensitive issue for China. The whole foundation of U.S.-China relations is based on the what they agreed on uh, over Taiwan. And this is something that she uh, said in the meeting with Biden. You know, that's how he described it. Um, it's because to open up with China, the U.S. had to recognize Taiwan uh well, it had to recognize Beijing as China and sever formal relations with Taiwan and consider it part of China. But they have, the, you know, uh, you know, informal relations with the island. But the Biden administration following Trump has taken all these steps to increase ties uh, and they just launched trade talks and stuff like that. And China is not happy about it. And of course, there's other things going on with Congress, as uh, when Nancy Pelosi visited in the beginning of August, China responded by launching its largest military exercises ever around Taiwan, and they've kept up the military pressure. It's congressional delegations have gone there since, and other officials from other countries, from the UK, 
their trade minister just went there. Um, so this is we're we're heading on a path of possible conflict over Taiwan. Although a, a you know a Chinese invasion is unlikely at least anytime soon, but they're not going to sit back and let the U.S. keep doing this. And and this meeting came as Congress is looking to give Taiwan. They want to give them ten billion in military aid over the next five years. It's part of the Senate's National Defense Authorization Act, which is still being worked out. Um, but that's unprecedented. It's going to be in foreign military financing, which is a State Department program that gives foreign governments all this cash to buy American weapons with. Um, so this is a huge change. And the U.S. keeps making these big changes, including President Biden saying that he's willing to defend Taiwan if China invades, um, breaking from the strategic ambiguity that the U.S. has followed on the issue. So all this is happening. But the U.S. is, you know, accusing China of <laughs> of of trying to change the status quo and uh really it, it just really rings hollow um to the chinese of course but to anybody that pays attention that follows this issue um so anyway the, the meeting you know that's the backdrop and it looks like they really just discussed managing tensions but they might have made some progress uh, there's still details coming out about the meeting of restarting military uh communication channels that were suspended after pelosi's visit um, and that that's for, you know, preventing a conflict in the South China Sea. Um, it's for because there is a lot of U.S. spy planes and warships around that area um, near Chinese, the Chinese military. So shutting down those those communication channels, you know, that makes the risk of an accident higher. And, and that could really turn into something with the state of these relations. Um, and they also discussed trade. President Biden recently Imposed some pretty serious sanctions on China's chip industry that seems to be uh, um, pretty major. A lot of American companies had to had to have to leave and stop doing business in China because of it. Um, he's really ramped up, you know, Trump's trade war, and uh, these are things you don't really hear about. You know, there's a, kind of this narrative uh, that China uh, that Biden is soft on China, but if you look at the policy, um, it, it's clear he's not. And also. The Pentagon recently reaffirmed in their national defense strategy that they view China as the top threat facing the U.S. Second, uh, Russia is second, so China is the priority. Every U.S. government agency has said that pretty much at this point. Um, and again, and that's a pretty big deal when they're in the middle of fighting a proxy war with Russia right now on the premise that it's the most dangerous thing in the world. But no, mm -hmm. actually, only second compared to the country we're not at war with. Yeah, that's right. And if uh, you heard recently, the head of U.S. Strategic Command, STRATCOM, who uh, he is the head of U the U.S.'s nuclear forces, but he said in a speech recently, he described, this is pretty concerning, he described the war in, in uh, Ukraine as a warm-up for what he called the big one that is coming. And he, what he's referring to there, I believe, is China, is a, is a, is a conflict with China. Um, any kind of military leader in the Pacific, the head of Indo-Pacific Command, the head of the U.S. Navy's 7th Fleet, I mean, you hear the things they're saying. They expect to be fighting a war with China in the next few years, next decade at, at the most. Um, so this is what they're preparing for. Um, and in this meeting, uh, it's clear that she told him, you know, Biden said going into the meeting, we, we're going to figure out each other's red lines. And she reiterated as Chinese officials have been for the past couple of years now that Taiwan is a red line. And um, again, I know you've had Peter Van Buren on here a lot, and he makes a very strong case for why China 
won't invade because a full-scale invasion would be such a huge operation and, and they have so much trade with Taiwan. But again, China's not just going to sit back and, and let this all happen. Well, um, I don't know. I mean, it seemed like their red line has been a declaration of independence by Taiwan, although that could change. Um, I mean, was there something more specific? You mentioned that she said, well, Taiwan's a red line. Well, what about it? Well, what I'm not sure exactly what she said in the meeting. This is just from the reports I've read. But what other Chinese officials have said over the past year, at least, uh, and before that, is that uh, Taiwan's independence, that's the red line, and also U.S. and other foreign interference, foreign support for what they call Taiwan's independence is also a red line. And they say that that could lead to war in the region. So in other words, defining it more broadly as American support. See, it's the same thing we have in Ukraine, too. Oh, no, we're not bringing them into NATO. We are making them a de facto <laughs> member of NATO. You know, in yeah. a way that, you know, same thing here. Oh, no, they're not going to declare independence, but we're just going to make sure that they have an air force powerful enough to repel an attack and assure independence, which we hadn't done before, that kind of thing. So uh, I also want to point out from just what I saw on Twitter this morning, the American version of the notes of the meeting, it said that Biden and she agreed that a nuclear war should never be fought and cannot be won. But the original Reagan-Gorbachev formulation there was cannot be won and must never be fought. And I wondered whether that was supposed to be, I know you don't have an answer for this, but is that supposed to be like some kind of deliberate dumbing down of Reagan and Gorbachev's agreement? Or they're just so stupid that they don't know that must and should are different and should is a lesser sort of form of must and things like that? Or what are they talking about? And just so everyone in the audience knows, China's got about 300 nukes, nuclear missiles, and we can't shoot them down and we can't take them all out in a first strike. So that means if we have a war with China, American cities will be lost to H-bombs. Guaranteed. Yeah, that's a pretty concerning difference. I didn't notice that, that they said should instead of must. Yeah, what the hell is that? <laughs> okay, Joe Biden's just senile. Nobody pay attention to the written mutterings of his note takers, I guess. I don't know. I, and I'm not trying to say that's ultra meaningful, but it seems kind of meaningful or at least potentially like if there was purpose behind that, then it's really stupid. Mm -hmm. and if there wasn't purpose behind it, then it's really stupid. You know? Um, anyway, I got more things I need to ask you about. <laughs> um, let's talk about Russia for a minute. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff People, you know, on right-wingers got a bad reputation on for Millie, and he's done a lot of things wrong in his career. I think they took out of context his talks with the Chinese over Trump. I think, you know, people kind of... Well, I'll go ahead and talk about that for a second, because right-wingers mm -hmm. had a, a pretty false narrative about that, that he was, like, undermining Trump there, when what he was really doing was he was telling the Chinese that you might hear kind of these narratives that were really coming from Democratic Party type officials at the time. That, oh, we think Trump could start a war with China in order to stay in office. And 
Millie was saying, no, you guys need to not worry about that. I promise you that's not going to happen. If there was a war between us, it would be as the result of a series of escalations on both of our parts over a period of time here. But if you think that the military establishment is going to let the president start a war just to stay in office, please sleep well tonight knowing that there's a 0% chance of that happening. That was perfectly within, one, his responsibility, and two, it was the right thing to do anyway, to make sure that they mm. were not buying in and, and getting an itchy trigger finger based on this complete, absolute nonsense, these lies by these goddamned Democrats that they were pushing <laughs> at that time. So, and then the other thing, of course, was, yeah, he botched the withdrawal from Afghanistan, but who gives a damn? We've been out of there for more than a year now, and that's good. So, anyway... Now to the war cabinet. You got Jake Sullivan, Hillary Clinton's bag boy. And then you have Antony Blinken, the worst diplomat since Mike Pompeo. And then you got <laughs> Joe Biden, who's senile out of his mind. And then you got Milley, who presumably represents the opinions of the chiefs, too, not just himself. And so mm -hmm. tell us, please, the important developments about what's going on in the war cabinet now in regards to the war in Ukraine, Dave? Yeah, so this is pretty significant. And uh, it was last week that Milley delivered a speech uh, at the Economic Club of New York where he really called for peace talks. I mean, he said uh, that there's an opportunity for peace and, and there's an opportunity to negotiate and that it should be seized. Um, and it was actually kind of buried uh, initially in the media. Uh, the write-ups of his speech focused on his his estimations of casualties in Russia and you, uh, sorry, in Ukraine and, you know, the write-ups by AP and the New York times, it, it was buried in there that he said, uh, now that now there's an opportunity for negotiations. And then, you know, this is huge because just until very recently, you know, the idea of diplomacy got you labeled as, you know, a Putin apologist, um, you know, all the sorts of names you were called. And that was really demonstrated by that group of progressive House Democrats who sent the letter to President Biden very meekly uh, calling for peace talks, calling for negotiations, just calling for diplomacy with Russia. Um, and then they retracted it a day later because of all the pressure they came under. And then just a few weeks later, here's the ch chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the highest ranking U.S. military officer saying that there should be negotiations um and it and he Such said cowardice he, i'm sorry to yeah. interrupt but like we got to dwell on that point it's an important one and i know you have a lot of important ones to get to here mm -hmm. but man this is what passes for the leftists inside the democratic party inside the house of representatives and they all completely back down on a call <laughs> for and they even specified in the thing I believe that they still favored arming Ukraine as long as the war continues. Just they want talks too. Like this is the most mealy mouth, just barely poking their head up kind of a thing at all. And then they all completely retreated from it and publicly castigated themselves for their terrible mistake and all of this. I mean, that is like something out of a damn novel. It's just incredible to see. And so screw them too. You know, how dare they? <laughs> and then, like you're yeah. saying, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff says it's okay, so now it's okay. But it mm -hmm. always was. 
And just like it should have been the consensus of 350 million Americans on the day the war started, that well, we better send Blinken to Geneva to stop the fighting right now. Not, oh, good, now we have an opportunity to weaken Russia and break their budget and cost them lives. Send their sons home in coffins, as Biden and his men have all said. They're crazy, man. Anyway. Yeah. But so, yeah, no, it is important to stress how you know pathetic that was that because if you read that letter you, like you said it, they open it with oh president biden you know it's been so great how you're arming ukraine everything's awesome and but but maybe uh you know there is this chance of nuclear war that you warned about so maybe we should explore the idea of diplomacy and then they pulled it but so here you have Milley, um and i mean again it was really buried what he said because uh he referenced World War One. He, he's, you know, saying that it should have been ended much sooner and that, you know, millions died in trench warfare and, and you know, when the battle lines barely changed. Because what he's saying, he, he he's predicting that this winter, Russia's going to dig into its positions. And they just withdrew from Kherson, um, the southern, uh, the, the city, the capital of the Kherson Oblast, uh, which is north of Crimea, which was pretty significant that they made that withdrawal. So he's saying, you know, in the winter, they expect it to be um, kind of a stalemate, although there are other the, the other side of it. A lot of Russian media and, and analysts say that Russia is preparing for a major offensive in, in the winter. So who knows exactly what's going to happen this winter? But anyway, Milley, you know, he's really calling for peace talks. And then after the speech, there was a f- multiple reports in The New York Times, CNN, uh, The Wall Street Journal that said behind the scenes he's been pushing for diplomacy. Uh, pretty, pretty majorly, it seems like. But this is uh, according to a CNN report. And there's other reports similar to this. Uh, and, and and we do have to keep in mind that they might be trying to, you know, seed a narrative here. But but we have Milley publicly calling for peace talks. And just by Blinken's, uh, what he's shown us, that he's shown us that he's not interested in diplomacy. So this report says that Blinken, the Secretary of State, and Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, disagree with Milley and do not think now is the time to make a serious push for peace talks. And um, the CNN report, you know, the way that they put it, they said that the State Department is on the opposite side of the poll from Milley. And they said this dynamic has led to a unique situation where military brass are fervently, fervently pushing for diplomacy more so than U.S. diplomats. Um, and I know we've seen this pattern before where the yep. Secretary of State, the State Department's more hawkish than the military. And the best example I could think of is Libya. Uh, Hillary Clinton was the one that convinced Obama to, to intervene in Libya when his Pentagon didn't want to do it. Yep. Um, and in Syria, too, look, when John Kerry was demanding war over the first al-Qaeda false flag sarin attack, it was the military and the rest of the intelligence agencies that were against it. And I was just rereading the one where um, this is years later. Obama tells Jeffrey Goldberg that the director of national intelligence, James Clapper, had told him the intelligence here is not a slam dunk. In other words, if you attack Syria and it doesn't go well, I'm going to blame it on you and tell everybody that I warned you that we don't have the intelligence to do that. Holy crap. Mm-hmm. That should have been the, you know, general strike right then and there that they even almost had the war. But anyway, I was just rereading that piece day before yesterday. And in there, they say at one point, Obama, and by the way, Hillary had sided with the military against him 
on uh, the Afghan surge. But at one point, um, Obama made a new rule at the National Security Council meetings that no one other than the military is allowed to propose military action of any kind ever again. Looking at you, <laughs> Secretary Kerry, shut your mouth. And because he wouldn't stop. So they had to make a new rule. I don't want to hear the State Department talking about who we should kill. Your job is diplomacy. And for the mad bomber, Barack Obama, to have to resort to a rule like that is, you know, smacks of real desperation on his part there. But that's the same kind of situation here. It is. And we've seen it. You know what? In Iraq War II, Dick Cheney and David Petraeus conspired to try to spread the war to Iran in 2007. Admiral Fallon, the commander of CENTCOM, said no over my dead body and stop. So here we have our standing army, the most dangerous threat to liberty, is actually, you know, in this empire, the restraining force on the eggheads half the time, you know? Mm -hmm. It's just incredible. Sorry, hang on just one second. Hey, y'all, Scott Horton here for Tennessee Hot Sauce Company. Man, this stuff is so good. They get all different flavors. Garlic habanero, honey habanero, pineapple habanero, Poblano Jalapeno, and the Blood Orange Ghost. They're all so good, I swear. And for a limited time, Tennessee Hot Sauce Company is featuring official Scott Horton Hotter Than the Sun thermonuclear hot sauce. It's full of Carolina Reapers, Scorpion Peppers, Dr. Pepper, Hydrogen Isotopes, and all kinds of things that'll burn your tongue clean off. Seriously, it's really good. Get yourself a hot sauce subscription. Spend $40 or more and use promo code SCOTT to get a free bottle of Hotter Than The Sun hot sauce. That's tnhotsauceco.com. Hey, y'all got to check out these awesome busts of our hero, the great Ron Paul. They're made by the renowned sculptor Rick Casali. They're 13 inches tall, hand-painted bronze resin based on Casali's brilliant original. Y'all may have seen mine in the background on my bookshelf in some recent interviews. The thing is unbelievable. Check out this incredible piece of art at rickcasali.com slash ronpaul, and you'll see what I mean. Use promo code Horton, and you'll save 25 bucks, and this show will get a little kickback, too. That's rickcasali.com slash ronpaul. Casali is C-A-S-A-L-I, rickcasali.com slash ronpaul. And there's free shipping, too. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Yeah, and uh, so one thing to mention about Sullivan. So this says Sullivan's not uh, into the idea of diplomacy. But there has been uh, recent talks, and it he has held talks with his Russian counterpart, the head of the Russian Security Council, Nikolai Petrushev, and the White House. They didn't con- confirm specifics about these talks, but they did say that there's been high-level communication with Russia. But that was more so about uh, avoiding the war escalating, you know, outside of Ukraine. Uh, and Sullivan hinted at this back in September when there was all this tor- talk of nuclear weapons being used. He said that they made clear to Russia at, at high levels what the consequences would be if they use a nuclear weapon in in Ukraine. So there were some signs that he was talking. And also, he was just in Kiev recently and spoke with Zelensky. 
and told him to soften his stance on negotiations. Um, and there was also a few reports about this, and those reports said that the idea was not to uh, actually make a real push for diplomacy. It was not to get Russia and Ukraine talking. It was more so uh, for PR purposes to get because uh, when you have Zelensky out there saying uh, his his position was that he ruled out talks with Russia as long as Putin was president. Yeah. Um, but he has dropped that position since talking with Sullivan, although he still is maintaining these demands. Russia must withdraw from Ukraine. They must pay reparations before talks could even happen. Uh, but, you know, that's also uh, a change at least. And now I also just read in the Wall Street Journal that apparently in this meeting and again, you know, this is just piecing together this. There's been a ton of media reports about this, but I thought this was significant. Sullivan raised the idea. It didn't say that he told Zelensky he should do this, but he raised the idea of maybe not uh, making one of your goals to be driving Russia out of Crimea, uh, which I thought that was significant that they're even discussing it mm -hmm. um, because that's been Zelensky and, and all of his advisors have been saying that they're going to kick Russia out of Crimea, and the U.S. has backed that. They've backed the idea of them attacking Crimea. But one thing, whenever they do any kind of attack inside Crimea, when they blew up the Kerch Bridge, which connects Crimea to the Russian mainland, when there was a big drone attack on Russia's Black Sea Fleet, Russia responded with you know its most intense uh, airstrikes and missile strikes and drone strikes against civilian infrastructure. So maybe they saw how Russia responds to attacks on Crimea and they're thinking, hmm, maybe we shouldn't uh, try to uh, get encourage them to take well, Crimea. Look, I mean, Dave, for, for Millie to say, hey, geez, you know what? We've got some good progress here in liberating Kursan and that's pretty great. Winter's coming. Let's talk now is quite explicitly, implicitly saying that you're going to have to give up on Mariupol. That we're going to nego negotiation means Ukraine losing a major part of the Donbass, and it means losing that so called land bridge between southern Donetsk and Crimea. And, you know, I'm not saying he said that, but I'm saying he said that, obviously, if he's saying, all right, great, curse on, you got curse on back, perfect, let's have some talks right now. He's acknowledging that they're going to have to lose some of uh, Ukraine here. And, of course, you know, as the Washington Post, uh, I guess it was you were the one who dug the headline out of the buried lead there a few weeks ago when the Biden government said, oh, yeah, no, nah, we know that there has to be a negotiated settlement at some point. It's not like the Ukrainians could win or anything. Mm -hmm. Well, good. Yeah, and then if they're saying, yeah, you know, maybe we could just drop Crimea I mean, that is obviously such a poison pill, deliberate deal killer to try to pretend that they're going to take the Crimean Peninsula back at this point um, and all of that. So if they're willing to drop that, some hopeful sign here mm -hmm. into Thanksgiving, man, I'll take it. All right. One more thing on um, Russia here real quick, Dave, is the new start negotiations. This is the last treaty standing, limiting overall numbers of strategic nuclear warheads on both sides. Yeah, and uh, that treaty expires in 2026. And actually, you know, one of President Biden's first foreign policy moves when he came into office at the end of January 2021, because the treaty was set to expire that February, one of the first things he did was got Putin on the phone and they agreed to extend it. 
So, you know, naively <laughs> back then, I thought, hey, maybe that's a good sign that he won't be too crazy on Russia. But clearly I was uh, very wrong about that. But anyway, so inspections under New START, because there is an inspection regime to the treaty, it limits the deployment of uh, warheads and bombers and missiles. And there's an inspection regime, but they've been suspended since March 2020 because of COVID. Uh, that's according to the State Department. That's what they've told me. And so the U.S. and Russia have just agreed to launch talks under the New START Treaty, under this committee called the Bilateral Consultative Commission, the BCC, and that's the implementation body of the uh, treaty. And they're going to hold talks on resuming these inspections. So they're expected to be held either late November or early December. And the venue is interesting. They're just they're saying that they're going to be held somewhere in the Middle East in an unnamed country. And that's because Geneva, the, the traditional venue for such talks, Russia doesn't find Switzerland to be uh, neutral anymore because they have joined in on some of the sanctions against Russia. Not all of them, but but enough to uh annoy Russia enough that they, they don't think that they're a, a neutral body anymore. Um, so the talks are really going to be focused on resuming the inspections. Russia has kind of downplayed the idea that there's going to be much progress, but it's something in the direction of arms control. Uh, so hopefully, you know, they get the inspections resumed and then they kick off talks on replacing the new start. Um, because before this, there was a lot of signs that the U.S. had no interest in arms control with Russia. They were in talks on arms control separately from the talks that they were holding with Russia before the, you know, and Russia's security guarantees before the invasion. But they cut off the arms control talks after the invasion. Russia was saying they were ready to resume them. And for a while, the U.S., the State Department was saying, no, 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 now's not the time for that. So this is another kind of change toward diplomacy. And, uh, Another thing that I just saw, actually, is that William Burns, the head of the CIA, uh, just met with his Russian counterpart in Turkey. Um, so there's more talks there. Uh, and the White House was saying that the talks were focused on the consequences of the use of nuclear weapons and the issue of U.S. prisoners in Russia. <laughs> they said it wasn't a negotiation about Ukraine, but I'm sure that it was discussed um, so there are all these different, uh, you know, avenues of diplomacy opening up between the U.S. and Russia, which, you know, I think is definitely a good sign. It's always talks are always good. Uh, but we also do have to keep in mind that the U.S. and NATO still have big plans uh, to keep arming Ukraine. I mean, the U.S. just announced they're opening a command in Germany uh, that's going to oversee the training and arming of Ukraine. It's going to be headed by a three-star general. It's going to be manned by 300 military personnel. I mean, that's a that's a, a, a command for a war that the U.S. plans to be involved with for a long time. So while all these di diplomatic signs are good, I, I think we shouldn't get our hopes up too much that uh, you know this is going to end anytime soon. And uh, NATO also has a 10-year plan. Uh, this was according to a report in Politico. A 10-year plan to uh, modernize Ukraine's military and, and uh, military industrial complex to make them interoperable with NATO weapons more so than, than they are now. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just we have to keep in mind, you know, th they got big plans here. Um, 
Lloyd Austin's pals at Raytheon are just really cashing in on this, and they're going to want to keep it going. So um, just have to, you know, not get too optimistic here. Hmm. Well, um, we're coming up on 21 years of war in Somalia. What's the latest there? Yeah, well, so this is an area where Biden is escalating in Somalia. One of the few bright spots of his presidency was when he first came in for the first year or so. U.S. airstrikes in Somalia really declined. He only launched a few in 2021. But since May, he ordered the redeployment of up to 500 troops to Somalia back in May. And since then, and more so recently, we've been seeing more U.S. airstrikes in Somalia. And part of that, the reason why, uh, is because the U.S.-backed government there, based in Mogadishu, under this new president, um, has launched some offensives against al-Shabaab. The fighting seems to be mostly in central Somalia, uh, but AFRICOM, U.S. Africa Command, has the average now, it seems like two or three times a month, they say that they launched an airstrike in Somalia. And the latest is that they said they launched one on November 9th, and they're saying that it killed 17 al-Shabaab fighters. Uh, That was the second one in November. The other one was launched on November 3rd, saying that they killed 15 al-Shabaab members. And they say that their initial assessments, you know, in both cases, they're claiming no civilians were harmed. But we have to keep in mind that the Pentagon is just notorious for undercounting civilian casualties. And there's virtually no accountability for what they're doing in Somalia right now. Um, because it gets so little media coverage. I mean, this a lot of times when I write these stories up, I'm just basing it on an AFRICOM press release because there's just no other information about it. This last one, the only place that I saw, you know, I might have missed something that I saw have a write-up about it was CNN. And, uh, you know, theirs is just a regurgitation of the AFRICOM press release. You know, I don't have too much information to work on, but I could at least mention, you know, the U.S. history of killing uh, civilians in airstrikes in Somalia. Um, so, and according to the New York times, this was actually a report from your pal, uh, Charlie Savage. He was one of the authors on it. Um, the U S took a break from washing dishes at pizza hut to do another report. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but this was, uh, maybe a month ago, this report came out that the U S is considering escalating its role in the war in Somalia even further. So right now, under Biden's drone strike policy, um, if strikes are outside of Iraq and Syria, they need to be signed off by the White House. But there's a big loophole. If they're justified in self-defense, then they don't need White House approval. And if you look at all the airstrikes AFRICOM has been la- say has been reporting, they all say, oh, they were done in the collective self-defense of Somali forces. But the Somali government wants... Um, wants them to loosen these restrictions even more. And then that could really escalate the war. That's something Trump did when he first came in. He loosened the rules of engagement uh, for Somalia. and Drastically. Yeah. And and Biden did tighten that back up, but it looks like, you know, they're, they're considering loosening it even more. And it's just really amazing to me how little attention this gets. I mean, right now, Somalia is the country that the U.S. is bombing uh, the most. Uh, you know, it's the, the war on the terror war is still going on there and um just nothing it doesn't seem like anybody cares and it was like that under trump too i mean he was bombing a lot of other countries um although it it all scaled down towards the end of his presidency but not somalia that kept ramping up um 
There's so, a couple things about it. I think one of them is it's not directly connected to the rest of the terror wars. You know, Iraq War II caused Libya and Syria in its way, and even Syria helped cause Yemen in its way and that kind of thing. Where this one is just across the Gulf over there. Ramondo years ago called it the whole terror war writ small. You have the entire, you know, chain of events of all the blowback and all the CIA and all the everything in one small place. And then it's kind of hard to escape, you know, just, I mean, basically the the major media blackout on it and, and neglect coverage. So hardly anybody knows anything about it. And there's no real Somali, like, interest groups in America who are loud about it. And so, you know, it's just, you know, people know nothing about it. And frankly... Maybe it's just a correlation without causation, but they're the blackest victims of the terror war and seem have always seemed, for 20 years of this, have seemed to be the most invisible victims of it all. You know? I think that yeah. is part of it, man. It has to be. Yeah. Um, yeah, really, the only, like, reporter I could think of, I, and I'm sure that there's more, you know, I don't want to insult anybody, but is, you know, Nick Terse, he is the most thorough on the U.S., you know, wars in Africa and AFRICOM. Um, and he's really the only one. I mean, he's in the Intercept, and uh, he's the only one I could think of, really, that reports critically on this stuff. Um, yeah, it's just total blackout. And something that I thought really was interesting is that uh, I mentioned earlier about the, the new national defense strategy that names China as the top threat. You know, if you look at the order that they put everything in, China, Russia, they mention Iran, North Korea, and then what they call violent extremist organizations, which includes Al-Qaeda and ISIS, that's way down at the bottom. And Al-Shabaab, you know, they're an Al-Qaeda affiliate. Um, the best background on this uh, is that people can read if they want a quick background on Somalia is your uh, chapter from uh, – Enough already that we published at antiwar.com. I always link to it in my articles about Somalia if people want to check that out. Yes, yeah, but like the third or fourth article ago, if you just go to antiwar.com slash Scott, it'll forward you on. Yeah, but so, because I, I need to learn more about Somalia. I need to really kind of study up on it just because it doesn't seem like anybody else is going to do it. Um, but just Justin was with, always great on it too. Yeah. Just with Al-Shabaab, I mean, because they are a big group and, you know, they pledge loyalty to Al-Qaeda. But as you give the proper context, you know, they were an offshoot of uh, the Islamic Courts Union, which uh, was in charge in Mogadishu before the U.S. backed uh, Ethiopian invasion of the country. They knocked out the Islamic Courts Union and then Al-Shabaab, who are the mo more extremist ones. They, you know, that's when they first started um that's when they first showed up and, and started taking credit for attacks on Ethiopian troops occupying Mogadishu. And it wasn't until 2012, so six or five years after they first started attack, making attacks, that they declared loyalty to al-Qaeda. So after years of fighting the U.S. and its proxies. Um, so there's no reason to think that they're more than just a local threat in East Africa. Um, but what the, the national defense strategy, it doesn't mention Somalia or Al-Shabaab even by name. I mean, they're not even they don't even make the 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 paper. Um, and yet that's the country where we're launching. The U.S. is launching the most airstrikes. Yeah. And look, it's a situation that has been all along, too, where it's just an Afghanistan type thing. The American attempt to create this phony government in Mogadishu cannot outlast American attempts to prop it up with fire and money. As soon mm -hmm. as they leave, 
Al Shabaab's going to win. Simple as that. They already lost. They lost a decade ago. It's just like in Afghanistan. Well, we can stay here. Nobody can kick Americans out. They have, you know, no, they don't have, nobody has the power to make America go. But America does not have the power to create a government over the people of southern Somalia that they are willing to accept. They've already failed. And the fact that we're even having this conversation in 2022 is itself an atrocity. You know, there's just the number of people who have died in this thing. And because it's war-inflicted famine. So, right, like when Stalin kills people with famine, you count that. Well, when America kills people with famine, you got to count that too. It's got to be half a million. It's a quarter of a million by 2013. And this is the third famine they're kicking in now. And, of course, the locust plague came from Yemen, which is a direct consequence of Obama and Trump and Biden's war there, where the anti-grasshopper campaign of the university was suspended and they turn into a giant locust plague. It's all also at antiwar.com. Morgan Hunter wrote this great piece all about that, the locust plague that hit East Africa in the last few years was a direct result of America's war in Yemen. And so if it counts when the commies do it, it counts when we do it too, when our government does it. So yeah, you might even think it matters. You know, mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands of people starving to death, huh? Yeah, and it seems like famine, uh, food-wise, in Somalia, things are going to get pretty bad, uh, get real bad again. Yeah. Um, all right, well, listen, thanks for all your great work and coming back on the show. Sorry to leave mm -hmm. it on such a bummer. I, I don't have a joke or anything. We're just screwed. Um, <laughs> yeah. Those uh, poor Somalis are. Yeah, it's usually, you know, bad news that, that I have for you. But, hey, I mean, I think the diplomacy front... Russia, Ukraine. They are talking change. a little bit, right? You're right. Yeah, it's a. I mean, again, you know, it's 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 CIA now. It's uh, nuclear talks. <clears throat> Jake Sullivan and then Mark Milley. So it's definitely significant. Something's changing there. Um, but I also, you know, if people want to hear this bad news every day, um, I got to plug my new show. Absolutely, uh, man. I'm sorry, I should have said that at the beginning. Oh no, it's it's good. Uh, Anti-war news with me, Dave DeCamp. Um, you can listen to the audio version wherever you listen to podcasts, and I also put a video up on YouTube, Odyssey, and Rumble, so you could go subscribe there and all that good stuff. Oh, yeah. All right, man. Well, thank you so much. And it's great, by the way, everybody. You know, you don't have time to read antiwar.com every day. Well, just listen to antiwar.com every day on your way to work. Uh, the great Dave DeCamp. Appreciate you, bud. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Horton Show and Antiwar Radio can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.